Welcome to the Waiting Warriors podcast. As loved ones of first responders and military personnel, we often face life situations and challenges that many others don't experience. And while each of us and our experiences are unique, together we can learn from one another and become stronger in this journey of life. Now let's step out of mediocrity. It's time to thrive. beginning of the podcast suicide prevention awareness series i put together these interviews because it's something we hate to think about but the fact of the matter is is our loved ones are exposed to incomprehensible amounts of trauma and we need to figure out a way to help them face that instead of turning a blind eye having the attitude of bucking up and rubbing dirt on all our problems we need to face this head on So, to start off this series, I invited David Wood to talk to us about some more factual parts of suicide prevention. Welcome to a very special um, Waiting Warriors podcast. Today, I have Dr. Dave Wood. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Dave, why don't you give a little background on yourself and your experience? You bet. Um, First and foremost, my civilian job is a professor for Brigham Young University. I teach in the School of Social Work, and I teach uh, Masters of Social Work students to become therapists. My other role, my other hat that I wear, is I am in the Army National Guard in the state of Utah with the 19th Special Forces Group. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I support the 19th Special Forces Group and do a lot of suicide prevention work there. Also, back to my uh, uh, academic role, I do a lot of research on suicide, especially with uh, veterans. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from a little bit. I also do an independent practice and work with individuals clinically and uh, very often have veterans and others who are facing suicidal crises in my independent practice. So quite appropriate for today's topic. Yeah, happy to be here to talk about it. It's a tough one, but, uh, but I'm happy to do it. Right. So I was hoping you could talk to us not just about suicide prevention and because I know you're typically probably typically used to talking to veterans themselves, but kind of more the approach of how we as loved ones can be aware and assist. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say on that note is that this can be a really tough topic for loved ones and it can induce a lot of guilt Uh, or maybe pressure for those who may have a loved one who's at risk of suicide and a lot of guilt for those who have lost a loved one to suicide. So I want to be very sensitive about, you know, talking about strategies and tools and methods for addressing and preventing suicide or dealing with it if it it does happen. Um, And to be good to go easy on family members, but also to emphasize that loved ones have a key role, a a crucial role. One of the research studies that we're working on now, working on getting published is we did an analysis here in the state of Utah of, individuals who died by suicide and looked at who was the last person they had contact with. And overwhelmingly, the the people, the group of people that have last contact with people who died by suicide are family members, spouses, or our friends or loved ones, so people that are very close to it. So again, I think there's a really an important role for loved ones to play in preventing suicide with the caveat of it's hard. It's a heavy burden to feel like I it's on me to prevent my loved one from dying by suicide. And, or on the other hand, uh, the sense of guilt that I, it was on me, I should have done more to prevent the suicide death of a loved one. We know that not every suicide can be prevented, and we need to be gentle and and uh, um, and understanding uh, toward those who've had the experience and tragedy of losing one who's 
a loved one to suicide. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So uh, chime on in, tell me where you want me to go. I've, I've got a, I've got a kind of a, a framework that I like to present to, to everyone to, for suicide prevention, kind of a three, a three piece uh, kind of a model that kind of helps look at, you know, what might contribute to suicide risk. Uh, I could jump in. Do you want me to do that or do you have? Yeah, just jump right okay, into great. that. That'd be great. There's a, a suicidologist by the name of Thomas Joyner in Florida, and he's a uh, he's been a longtime researcher and clinician, psychologist in the area of suicide. And he's tried to understand it. We've, we've, for a long time, we've known that mental health diagnoses are a risk factor. We know that uh, certain genders are risk factors, certain, uh, certain life experiences cause risk, but it's really, really hard to predict suicide. And so Dr. Joyner presented what's called the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. And if you'll bear with me, there's a little bit of jargon here, but I'm going to break it down to make it easy because I think that this framework makes a lot of sense. This framework uh, looks at three different things as the primary underlying contributors to suicide risk. And I'm going to describe what those three are. I'm going to break them down, but also just kind of give the preface of saying this is really helpful. When I've been asked to do what's called psychological autopsies, when I've had to go visit with uh, uh, or, or uh, talk to friends and family members of a, of a service member who's died by suicide, this, this framework really uh, helps explain things backwards uh, to kind of say this is we kind of get a better sense of how this service member got to where they were, to where they wanted to die by suicide and, and, and how they actually got there. Let me also quickly chime in one more quick little note is that you'll notice that I'll, I'll, I'm careful about the words I use to describe suicide. Um, we try to yeah. avoid um, uh, in doing suicide prevention work, the words complete suicide or uh, kind of to try, we don't want to kind of intermingle positive words into a suicide death. So I will almost always say die by suicide, death by suicide, just to kind of be straightforward and frank that this is not necessarily a good thing. And it wasn't an accomplishment, achievement, or completion of anything. So that's well, okay. Um, oh, and one, one other thing too, in, in the National Guard role, I, I'm an applied suicide intervention skills trainer. It's called, a, it's a workshop called ASSIST, a two-day workshop that is available to many, probably many of your listeners um, who are affiliated with the National Guard or reserves. And so that's a nice, a great way to get up to speed to learn two, day, two days of intensive training on how to help people who may be at risk of suicide. So I'll put that plug in there. Is that is that online or would, how would someone... Get it's face to face, that. so it's usually at a in a, at an installation uh, within the National Guard and Reserve, and then of course there are many many options and uh, um, uh, uh, family member focused trainings for the active duty side as well for all the branches. It's a it's a major major uh, issue for for those uh, who are um, concerned for the for the military, I should say, and for veterans too. So uh, just kind of beware. And there's another one called QPR, Question, Persuade, and Refer. It's a much shorter training, but helps people become what we call gatekeepers. We don't expect the general population to be skilled and to learn how to really help uh, intervene uh, with someone who's at risk of suicide in a clinical uh, fashion. But we do want everyone on, in all, all communities to have people called gatekeepers who can identify risk factors for suicide, who can uh, approach and intervene effectively, and then ultimately get that person to help. And that's what we call the gatekeepers, and that's what's called gatekeeper training, which I highly recommend and endorse, whether that be through the military or through other organizations. Uh, 
in, in individuals, states, or where they reside. So pardon that tangent. Uh, now back to the, uh, the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide. There are three main elements that tend to, uh, tend to explain and predict a person's risk of suicide. And the first one is uh, called thwarted belongingness. So essentially belonging or a relationship that was thwarted or disrupted or interfered with. And so essentially what that is, is a relationship went awry. It went bad. It went south. There was a breakup or there was a fight or there was uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, being excluded or kicked out of a social group. That could be in the context of veterans. That could be maybe a, a discharge that was not wanted or it could be a divorce or a breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend. Or it could be also maybe kind of a disowning or, or a kind of an exclusion from a family a family system. Anything that would represent an important relationship that's disrupted, that's part of what's called thwarted belongingness. And we find over and over and over in um, cases of suicide risk or suicide crisis or suicide uh, death that there was very, very often a relationship that did not go well or was not went awry. That's the first one, thwarted belongingness. And so that's an important piece to bear in mind. Um, the next one is um, is uh, called perceived burdensomeness. Again, a little bit more psychobabble, so bear with me on that. Perceived burdensomeness, mm-hmm. which is essentially the kind of the the, uh, the person's own appraisal of themselves as I am I am a burden to others, or people would be better off without me, or something happened in my life that has altered my appraisal, my assessment, my uh, my. Um, regard for myself as being less, uh, more valuable out out of the picture than in the picture, or that I'm causing problems or difficulties or uh, challenges to those around me because of my my errors, my mistakes, my failings, those kind of things. And so, whether that's true or not, whether that's you know valid or not, the the important important piece is that the person at risk of suicide perceives themselves to be a burden, and uh, and, and is at risk in that regard. And so we have those two pieces. Those are the two, the psychological pieces. <clears throat> the third piece is called uh, acquired capability. Again, bear with me, another piece of kind of a, another kind of term, of a little bit psychobabble there. Uh, but acquired capability is a person's uh, tendency to, um, to have a reduced fear of death and or a, re- a reduced aversion to pain. And, uh, hmm. and so there's, there's something, there seems to be something, whether you're looking at from a spiritual perspective or from a uh, evolutionary perspective, that we are wired to survive. There's something, there's, we have a drive within us that wants to live, that wants to be there, that wants to be present and to survive and persist in living. <coughs> Pardon me. And it seems that uh, for those at risk of suicide, they cross a threshold whereby that, um, that drive is diminished. And some of the ways that we believe that that drive can be diminished is through, um, first and foremost, um, attempting suicide. It seems that uh, approaching the the act or the prospect of taking one's own life does something. It, it creates some sort of a familiarity with that that dangerous territory, and with that familiarity, there's a little bit less. Uh, um, anxiety or a little bit less fear and that person becomes a little bit more kind of lulled into uh, maybe uh, security or a little bit lulled into a sense of this isn't so bad or I've been here before. So that's one way that a person can uh, uh, can uh, 
register on acquired capability. And that's a concern because that person over time can become less fearful of the prospect of death, which is very natural. And they can also become less, uh, have less aversion or less, less kind of revulsion or reaction to pain, which we all, we all normally react to pain in a very strong way. People who are at risk of suicide tend to have a little bit less, uh, on, on average, not everybody, on average, tend to be a little bit less um, averse to pain, painful experiences. I'll give you some other examples in addition to the actual suicide attempt. Another example is the, um, uh, so for example, looking at a, a suicide autopsy that I had to do for a, a service member that died tragically uh, to suicide. I'll give you an illustration of all three. So this individual, of course, I will not uh, disclose identifying information and be respectful to the, the, the individual uh, and not disclose any identifying information by doing so. But this individual had a divorce and it was a really painful, very painful, difficult divorce. And so we had a clear, a clear incident of a thwarted belongingness. And this is a very, very difficult experience for for this male right. service member. It was an enlisted service member and, uh, um, and, and it was very, very challenging for him. The, uh, the other piece was the, um, there was a growing sense of, uh, of perceived burdensomeness that uh, he would give uh, signals to his friends uh, uh, and, um, and would kind of say, you know, I've, I've never really been that good of a friend to you or I've let you all down and kind of, kind of a little bit self-disparaging kind of talk. And that was present in a lot of the discourse and dialogue and just kind of sitting around the campfire. In this case, also, what's very common is, is uh, drinking alcohol. Obviously, that's kind of a, a major concern among a lot of veterans and service members, and we're, we're mindful of that. And that that consumption of alcohol can also be a piece in the very short term that can also contribute to acquired capability. If I'm, in, I'm intoxicated, I am going to be inherently less <laughs> less averse to pain or, and less uh, maybe less fearful of death because mm-hmm. my my the natural inhibitions that are in my, my brain and my personality are going to be dampened and, and numbed a bit. So that's another piece there. So the alcohol was there. On the issue of acquired capability for this individual, for this particular case, uh, he was, um, I asked his his surviving uh, battle buddies, as we call them in the Army, the, the guys that he really hung out with and was really close to in the military. I asked, you know, where was he uh, on the on a continuum, like on a, on a line of, on the one hand, the left-hand side of the line is, uh, super cautious and careful and really kind of must really kind of check things out before taking any kinds of physical risks versus on the right hand side, very adventurous, very um, uh, maybe a bit thrill seeking, that kind of thing. And they said, oh, hands down, he was the most uh, uh, aggressive mountain biker and he was the most uh, uh, the most active, you know, thrill seeker that we, we knew, even even for army standards, because that's pretty typical for military service members and soldiers in particular to be very much into thrill seeking. And so it was really clear to see those three elements very, very apparent, uh, very apparent for, for, for him. And it kind of helped to kind of paint the story backwards to help explain to the, to the military uh, what happened. And I guess much, much more important than that was to kind of see how this model can really help to kind of see much earlier signs of warning for for a risk of suicide. So that is the the uh, description of the uh, interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, IPTS, um, which inc- includes the uh, thwarted belongingness, uh, disruptive relationship. Number two, perceived burdensomeness, feeling like I, I'm, I'm a burden to other people, people would be better off without me. And number three, the, the acquired capability, which is kind of that reduction of fear of death and aversion to pain. 
And then I provided a brief illustration there too to kind of talk about how that works. And uh, and Otto, and I pause for a minute and maybe kind of see what what questions or thoughts you have about it. My my biggest question is what like what can we do to help people? I I don't know if cope is the right word or. Um, just get get out get help get them out of that those mindsets. Excellent. Yeah, that's I'm, that's great. Um, do you know what so I mean? So I think um, so. My bias as a mint, I'm a licensed psychologist and a clinical psychologist for the Army National Guard. <clears throat> so I um, my bias is to is to get into people in the treatment. Um, that's kind of the consensus idea is that we we as loved ones and family members do not have to do it on our own. The metaphor. Uh, the metaphor that we offer in the assist right. workshop is that uh, we we train people to become gatekeepers and they function analogously to um, first responders, uh, you know, like uh, like EMTs or even just like a first responder mm-hmm. where you're, you've taken a first aid course and you know how to stop bleeding. You know how to um, assess for the kind of the basic pieces that will sustain life in an individual. And that's kind of what we want to kind of promote in, in our communities uh, to, for loved ones, family members, friends, others who encounter someone who may be at risk of suicide to kind of provide that first responder role, uh, not necessarily to, and I'll provide some specifics for sure, but not to, uh, to take the burden of, mm-hmm. I have got to help unravel this person's sense of perceived burdensomeness, which is very often accompanied by clinical depression. Or I need to help. I, the burden is on me as a loved one to resolve this uh, thwarted belongingness, this this messy divorce this person went through. I've got to take that on me to to uh, fix that, and that's not appropriate. That's not an appropriate expectation for a loved one. That's going to take it's going to take more time and more people, and, and very likely uh, some professional assistance, whether that be the form of uh, uh, medications or psychotherapy or other interventions that might be helpful to help. Uh, work work that through. So that's kind of um, the the first thing I would say is that kind of adopt a first responder role or a gatekeeper role. I'm a gatekeeper because I first recognize you at being as being risk at being recognize you as being at risk of suicide, and I know where to take you, where to get you, where to get you connected to um, to get help. <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. my second question is how. I'm, I am seeing time and hearing time and time over again that it's hard for um, military personnel, first responders, law enforcement, all of them have a hard time going and seeking help or talking to people about it because they feel this stigma that they should be able to handle what is going on, um, especially if like this suicide is kind of a repercussion of things that have happened on the job. They feel like they should be able to handle it, that they should be tough enough and should be able to just rub some dirt on it. So to go seek treatment is a sign of weakness. And, but, but that's, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. And I think a lot of loved ones would always think that that's not true, but how can we get our, our, soldiers, our veterans, our law enforcement and first responders to, to accept that and be willing to go. Yeah. That's a a terrific question. Stigma, as it's called, 
uh, stigma being a, a negative mindset about any particular uh, topic, in this case, uh, treatment, getting mental health treatment or getting help or assistance, there's mm-hmm. stigma uh, related to uh, getting treatment. And that stigma can be uh, many sources. One could be uh, uh, self-stigma that I, I personally would look down on myself or I'd feel bad about myself if I had to get help from somebody. There's also a social stigma where the person maybe feels like others might look down on me if I if I got help and that's not my culture, that's not what my unit, that's not what my that's not what I do as a veteran. And then there's also the the re- very real uh, aspect of it, which can be the uh, career re- repercussions or kind of my social standing repercussions, which could be like, it's a big deal about um, if I go get help, am I going to be denied promotions in the military? Right. Or am I going to be denied um, opportunities for uh, for special assignments, that kind of a thing? Or am I not going to be able to be deployed where, you know, many, many uh, service members uh, very much want to deploy. There's many that don't. But uh, but for the most part, deployment mm-hmm. is a very you know sought after kind of experience. And so a lot of times people will suppress and under under report any potential problems so that they're not flagged for potential uh you know, for, for, for behavioral health or mental health issues and they're not denied opportunities. So those three elements, self-stigma, social stigma, and the uh, career repercussions are three common sources or contributors to stigma. You know, I guess my answer to is how do we, how do we overcome that is really because back to um, trying to break that down uh, uh, for all three of those. There's one example, and I'm happy to promote it and, and encourage your listeners to check it out. Uh, I think it's very relevant for service members, uh, uh, but it's also relevant for uh, veterans as well. There's a video on YouTube called Breaking the Stigma. That's what's called Breaking the Stigma, and it's produced by SOCOM, which is the Special Operations Command. And that's kind of the, I'm in a, I'm in a uh, unique community which has uh, a significant amount of stigma, where you have individuals who work very, very hard, and they're often very, very gifted or especially selected to perform uh, special missions in the military in the special operations community for across all branches. And there's a lot of training, a lot of investment, a lot of money and anticipation going into being able to participate as a special operations soldier or warrior. And so stigma is very, very high. And this breaking the stigma video uh, has um, green berets and it has uh, combat arms group individuals and, and army rangers. So it's very army, a bit army centric, but it, but it also uh, has, but the point, the important point is that um, they talk about it's okay to get help, and you're not weak if you get help, mm-hmm. and if you get help, your commander's on your side, um, and so it's one of the more compelling, you know, illustrations of of breaking the stigma. I know also that the VA has some excellent and well crafted uh, uh, stigma reduction materials, and I would urge also the consideration of what the VA has to offer in terms of. Uh, videos, pamphlets, and different kinds of, you know, uh, public public health campaigns to try to help reduce the stigma. So that's kind of on a global level. Those are some uh, some resources that might be helpful. But at the end of the day, I think it's important just to kind of to be able to support that individual. I think we as mental health professionals can also play a really critical role because oftentimes people uh, avoid treatment, not just because of the stigma, but because they don't believe that, it, that treatment works or they think that we're all kind of weird <laughs> health providers. And so we need to become very, very approachable and very, very clear about what we can and cannot do. I, for example, in the Army National Guard, when I work with soldiers, um, when they pose those questions to me, I said, you know, I would get help, but I don't want this to hurt my career. 
I would point them to examples of how we've not is not hurt uh, examples where it's not been hurtful to a person's career, and also to offer kind of a a pathway whereby we say. Um, this is what I do to help. I, I, I'm in a good place as a behavior health officer for the military to advocate for a soldier or a service member who is open to getting help, who is getting help and is working through the process in a way to get better. That's a really easy case for me to be an advocate for. I can really help them out. That may not be as relevant to the veteran side mm-hmm. of things, but definitely, um, you know, we can we can play an important role as mental health providers. So, yeah, that's those are my ideas. There are some public health uh campaigns that are trying to help reduce the stigma. I think people within the system can help reduce the stigma. And I think that, um, I think really probably the main thing is that, you know, uh, we need good examples of, of veterans and uh, service members who are who are willing to get help and, and willing to characterize that as that is what a true warrior does. A true warrior uh, retools and repairs and recovers from tough experiences, including those that precipitate uh, the despair that can lead to suicide. Right. That makes sense. So that's kind of, that's kind of in a nutshell, a little bit about the stigma piece. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll just quickly review what we've talked about. Uh, we, we talked about, um, the, um, interpersonal theory of suicide, interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, those three main points to look for, for those who might be at risk of suicide. We also talked about, um, uh, kind of the role of loved ones, which is kind of a first responder, and uh, what I would propose is that the main takeaway on that is that the first responder would be to be able to ask, are you thinking of suicide? And that's a really crucial question to not avoid that topic, to not avoid that question. Um, so, um, again, that's the, the first responder is willing and able and ready, willing and able to ask, are you thinking of suicide? We like that question. That's a, an important question to pose because many times that is not uh, posed or asked. And so uh, in addition to the, those three elements of the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, we talked about the first responder role, the gatekeeper role, and the willingness to ask about suicide. And we finished up here talking about um, the, um, the idea of stigma. And it's formidable, and it's significant, and it's hard. We don't, have, we don't have an easy, ready solution to overcome stigma, but there are things in place that are moving that direction. We do believe there are some research to suggest that stigma is reducing in some respects, um, it's not all, it's not all way, all the way gone. Um, but, uh, but, uh, uh, we're hope, we're hopeful that, uh, as time moves on, we'll be able to kind of reduce stigma and, and be able to help veterans and service members be more open to receiving treatment. On the last point, I think I, I I'm, I'm, I've been doing some research on, on different modalities to help treat PTSD and other, other types of, uh, of ailments, mental health disorders that don't entail uh, traditional psychotherapy. I have nothing against traditional psychotherapy. I think it's really important. Um, I'm a psychotherapist. I provide therapy all the time. And I'm also aware of a lot of individuals who get benefit from psychopharmacology, from uh, from medications. And that's that's an important piece there too. I think there also needs to be something kind of to fill the gaps, something that draws and engages service members and veterans into treatment that that would maybe get them there where they otherwise would not. And uh, examples of these include um, um, uh, equine-assisted psychotherapy, where they're using, using horses to try to help kind of develop trust and, and feedback and confidence and to work through difficulties that way. Um, others that don't involve as much talking, there's an example called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, which doesn't is not as much of a, it's, it's somewhat verbal, but there's a the main component is not about talking about um, uh, the trauma, more just kind of, 
um, reviewing it in one's mind with the support of a therapist through the technique of EMDR. I'm using something called alpha stim, which is a kind of a using a using brain waves to try to help uh, help produce more serotonin in the brain to help kind of augment and strengthen a person's mental functioning to overcome depression and other difficulties and PTSD and anxiety. So there's other options that I think that are really important to to put on the table that are engaging to veterans that don't they're not the typical. I think sometimes we try to fit. It's the procrustean bed where we say if your legs are too long, we're going to cut your legs off. That's the idea. The idea is that if you if we're going to try to fit you, cram you into one of these cues called uh, medications, antidepressants, or traditional psychotherapy, and that works for a lot of individuals. But we need other options too. So I'm very very encouraging of of uh, recreation therapies and other kinds of therapies that help people, help service members and veterans get engaged and get better um, that don't necessarily entail sitting in, in an office or taking a medication or pill. Again, don't get me wrong, I'm not against those. So those are very important and those are right now the best we have. But I think we also have to kind of have be creative and think outside the box to get veterans engaged into therapy and treatment. And there's a lot of great options that are emerging that are helping to, uh, be, that are very, very appealing to veterans and service members. So with that, then I think that uh, I think I'll, I'll conclude. I'd be very happy to answer other kinds of questions. Um, I would be happy to um, uh, support or assist uh, with research or other kinds of uh, questions or concerns that come up if I can help out. Happy to be part of the Waiting Warrior uh, podcast today. I'm going to pause here. There's a question coming in, and I'm going to read that and respond to it. Okay. So the question is, how can we help discern between life being hard versus PTSD, and then suicide signs. Um, I, I think the main the main thing is uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that life is definitely hard, <laughs> and uh, and and life has as, ch- as challenges um, when we when uh, uh, there's stress and there's relation di- relationship difficulties. I think that the main the main way we as mental health professionals try to discern between the normal vicissitudes or challenges of life versus an actual clinical diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, or an actual suicide risk or suicide crisis is that the symptoms or the experiences a person's having, uh, they do or do not interfere with their ability to function. So another way to say that is that when we're looking at a diagnosis, we're saying the person, the person's functioning ability to function at work, in relationships, in their day-to-day living is altered or impaired or reduced. When we see that functional impact or functional impairment, that distinguishes, uh, in most cases, that crosses that line, that threshold between life is hard and difficult versus life is hard and difficult and I have uh, a pattern of symptoms and experiences that are diagnosable uh, as, a, as a disorder or treatable as a disorder or a, a suicide crisis. So I guess that, that functioning piece is the main thing when you see a person's ability to function drops. Now, that's not going to be evident in every single case. You might see people that are functioning seemingly well across all areas of their life and they, they are at risk of suicide, but that's more rare than not. That's more rare than is common because I think that um, uh, we do see that Im- impairment. So that's a great, great question. Other questions? Going to look, I'm going to scan, pause, and see if there's other questions here. Okay, it's been a pleasure to be on this podcast. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with y'all, and uh, I hope this has been helpful. And I uh, wish y'all the best with your efforts to work with your uh, veterans, service members, loved ones who may be at risk of suicide, and uh, wish you well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Even if it's all things you've heard before, you can keep the conversation going. Share the episode, talk about the episode. 
and I hope you keep your heart and your eyes open for those around you who need you. Join me next week as I talk to my dear friend Alara, who shares her story of having a late husband who died by suicide.